Hello, and welcome to Sip, Sip, Hooray, a podcast for people who are inspired by and curious about the world of wine. Here we talk about vintages and varietals, but more than that, Sip, Sip, Hooray is about the people who make the wine world so delicious. They are artists, farmers, creators, makers, writers, chefs, and just folks who enjoy a good glass of wine. Today on the show, we're delighted to be joined by a woman who's been talking and writing about wine for decades, and from the get-go has been advocating for a natural and authentic process where grapes speak for themselves without a lot of manipulation or homogenization. Alice Firing is one hell of a wine writer and the author of six books on wine, the most recent being To Fall in Love, Drink This. We know you're going to fall in love with Alice Firing, her passion, humor, good taste, and authenticity. We are the two Marys who like to eat, drink, and be Mary. I'm Mary Babbitt. And I'm Mary Orlin. So Alice Firing has many firsts in her wine writing life. She was the first to really call out the, what she calls the soulless parkerization of wine. Uh, the creating homogenous wines developed to please certain palates and by certain consultants and um, just being kind of one-note wines. But then um, she was also the OG natural wine writer. She was really the first person in the United States to write about the developing natural wine movement that she had encountered in Europe. And um, so now she's got a memoir out, which Mary talked about, and it's not your typical wine book. Um, There's um, encounters with an escape from a serial killer. And um, recommending wines to a plumber to improve his love life. So we are super excited to dig into this and to talk about natural wine too and where it's at these days. So Alice, welcome to Sip Sip Hooray. Well, thank you. I am particularly delighted to be here. Well, we are very happy to have you as well. And I know, as Mary mentioned, you this memoir is your latest book. So are you on a uh, is it released widely? Are you on a book tour now? How is that process going? Well, it is released widely. It dropped on August 9th. And I just came back from a little mini New England book tour because you can't really do anything in New York at the end of August because nobody's here. <laughs> <laughs> right. And so things are about to rev up in September and October. That's cool. So August 9th, that was my birthday. What a nice birthday gift. <laughs> yes. Happy birthday. Yay. It's great. Uh, Leo. Leo. It uh, is. Like yes. Andrea. Yes. Yes. So I have to say, I mean, I really enjoyed reading your book, but um, one of my most favorite chapters is the first chapter where you talk about learning to smell with your grandfather and developing a sense of smell, um, not only because you were sniffing everything, when, even from a young, young age, and um, you um, actually came in one day and saw your father, grandfather, I'm sorry, um, have with all these little vials of perfume that he was smelling, and you kind of leaped into that. So um, talk about your grandfather and the influence of smelling and had on um, your ability to understand wine? Well, um, hmm. yeah, they're probably some of my earliest memories of just smelling things with my grandfather and also drinking a little bit, a little bit of whiskey um, as like a a toddler. (laughs) And, but it was really his, that I remember looking at him smelling these little vials and from his drawer and he you know just kept them to smell them and at some point we would just smell them together and he spoke a very heavy Yiddish and not much English and I really didn't um, have any Yiddish for God's sakes Um, (laughs) and so it became you know sort of like a a language that we had together, but also since my whole family ridiculed me for smelling everything, somehow they didn't ridicule him for smelling anything, but me, they did. Um, it was, uh, it basically, I viewed it as 
as normal. So I never really minded it much when people were making fun of me. It's like, yeah, like, look at her. She smells everything. It was, it was just an instinctual thing that I always, I guess I say, entered a room with my nose first. Isn't that interesting? Well, and that probably really helped develop your, your palate and your nose for wine. Well, it, it did before I actually even knew it. Um, mm -hmm. Definitely helped me develop my palate. And I was always an extremely discerning child, though I wasn't necessarily a picky eater ever, but I knew what I liked. And um, kind of funny, being brought up in an Orthodox Jewish household, my eating was extremely limited. And the first time that I had Indian food, which was extremely hot, by the way. I thought I had died and gone to heaven. I had just, <laughs> and it's not a usual experience for people, but it was like the harder the better. I like bring it on. Um, mm -hmm. And oh. then, you know, when people ask me how has my palate changed over the years, it really, when I look back on it, the wines that I cut my teeth on in the 70s are still that kind of wine that I like now that I look for. Nothing really changed. And I guess it developed my palate and my nose enough that I knew when things were changing on me, the wines were changing um, in a way that did not suit me at all. Hmm. So and yes, I attribute pop, my grandfather with that. Cool. And so what are the type of wines you, were gra you gravitated to then and now? Well, back then, so everything was pretty much traditional in the 70s and the early 80s. So I was lucky enough to understand what traditional Barolo and Nebbiolo was. What um, Actually, it was kind of a difficult era for Burgundy. Um, and so it took me a long time after that to understand why people loved Burgundy. It was really hard, tannic, um, back in those probably they say the dark, the dark ages of really, really bad farming in France. Uh, but it was just really learning to like the wines that were made. I gravitated wines that were farm organically, made with native yeast, um, and really very little interfering with them and the vintage and the farming, just the expression of place. And my favorite wines are still Northern Rhone <laughs> and you know North and Northern Italy, and I tend always tended to sort of mountain high elevation wines. Forgive me, the UPS man. <laughs> <laughs> so if there was like a pause there where I was supposed to come in with a question, it was because I was staring at the UPS man in a desperate way, like, don't oh. make me talk to you right now. I so. see. I was thinking that maybe I was saying something really horrible. No, <laughs> oh no, no. I just shut you guys up because, oh my God, I did it again. It's, <laughs> Alice, it's not you. It's us. <laughs> this is our theme for today. <laughs> well, I'm interested in the fact that early on, Mary Orlin called you the OG of like the natural wine movement and mm -hmm. writing about that and talking about that. But I'm interested in the fact that you, you know, not being a winemaker or a vintner, but that you uh, understood that you liked wines in their most natural form and that you were bugged by what I assume what you saw was too much manipulation or maybe too many chemicals being used in, in winemaking. And I'm just, I'm impressed that, I guess when I think about my wine, my journey in wine and my wine knowledge, I wouldn't have known necessarily to look for any of that. And I wouldn't have, and I certainly didn't have the palate to taste it. Well, I certainly didn't know it at the time. So it was really only in retrospect. Mm -hmm. But um, when I look at my early, so between 1990 and 2000, I was just being, I was writing about other things besides wine, but I was doing the typical, you know, wine reviews. And I found when I look back on my old copy, they're really wines that I might recommend today, which was pretty funny. But it was really when new oak started coming in, I thought the problem was new oak. I didn't even know about the other stuff until 2000. But I did realize that there was an encroaching sameness to wine and I just blamed it on new oak. So in 2001, when I did the story for the New York times for better, for worse, winemakers go high tech. It really was when 
I started learning about all that can be done to change a wine into something that is more market driven instead of just soil expression or place expression. Mm -hmm. And then I went back to see the wines starting in 98, 99, and the wines that I had gravitated to were made with native yeast fermentation, were from organic viticulture, and then, and with minimal use or none of new oak, and many times raised in concrete. Um, and so it was really like, wow, okay, why do I like these wines and not those wines? Yeah. So it, I had to go back and then do, do, do the math, so to speak. And then I said, I guess this is what I'm going for. Well, I think people would be very surprised to learn that there are more than 72 chemicals or um, treatments allowed in, legally in wine, and they mm -hmm. don't have to be disclosed at all. No, they're still working towards an ingredient list, but that wouldn't really be a complete answer. Yeah, most people are surprised. It was funny, I was up in Vermont and a few months ago speaking to somebody who makes both conventional wine and natural wine. And we're talking about back in the days when he only made conventional wine and he's, you know, the hired winemaker, it's not his estate. And um, he said, well, I never really use much because I asked him how, how can he handle this duality? So yeah. well, I hardly ever used any really additives. And I said, well, let's count them up. <laughs> and <laughs> And he said, oh, okay, all right, okay. Once we got to 10, he said, yeah, I guess. Oh. Stop counting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. And, and that's, about, that's about normal. That's about normal. Mm -hmm. If you're not counting the various kind of enzymes that you can add, about 10 is normal, low intervention, supposedly, winemaking. And from your research, why is it these additives and chemicals are used? What is it because um, the... Are you talking about in the vineyard or in once, you know, we're in, in, the, in the processing, once yeah. we're in the cellar, once we bring the, the grapes in. And the reason is really just all about lab analysis and control. Um, or as I mean, I think it was Randall Brown who had called it like, you know, winemaking out of fear. Um, hmm. But it is you're afraid that things might go wrong. And so you, usually it is high volume winemaking and so you really need a very also stabilization and um standardization you really don't want to have people don't want to have vintage differences they want the consumer to be able to get the same product every year even though what brings us all to wine is la difference. I mean, it's really exciting to see the differences. Maybe I don't it's, like the vintage that goes up to 14.8 or 15, but I know that you're different from the vintage that's 12.5 or 11.5, and it's fun. It's exciting. Isn't right. that interesting? It's sort of like the Starbucks of wine, where it's mm -hmm. going to taste the same whether you're getting mm -hmm. your mocha in New York or Cincinnati, that, you know, that kind of that that drive to make it taste the same every time right the reliability and yeah. and um what was your motivation for writing the book about parkerization you know um right well it? they were from 2001 to 2004 those are my percolating years because i didn't even <laughs> write that <laughs> i mean well i was you know it was 2001 it was like a so much happened. Uh, that story that I wrote for the New York Times, which was kind of career changing, and then right after that, 9-11, which was life changing. And mm -hmm. um, and what that did to the economy and my ability to make a living as a writer, and where am I going to go, and a lot of soul searching. But in 2004, I started blogging. And, um, and in that way, I started blogging to as a way to basically write my notes, write my notes to mm. myself, but I did it publicly. And, and to learn from it. It was a very odd, you know, interesting time. Uh, what, the thing that really did it for me, though, there was a time when there was a Chilean wine event in New York that I went to. And 
you know, like at these events. And so all the media is there and people from Wine Spectator was there. Tom Matthews was there. And mm-hmm. I remember Tom Matthews getting up and saying to the winemaker, your wines used to be so, there used to be so much beautiful variation. And now, I mean, you have all this new technology and you're all tasting the same. And you're talking about different elevation, but we're not seeing in the wine. Why did you do that? But yet in print, it was only a celebration of the wine. And I just realized hmm. none of my peers were going to speak up about what was going on in the wine world. They were just all going to go, you know, applaud oh. and this little back scratching that goes on. And I guess because I was independent, I did not have a job. I did not have anything to lose. Uh, I already wasn't making much money that I decided to write the book that nobody else is going to write, hmm. which is how this one world, one wine approach was robbing this particular short red haired drinker from the ones that she loved the most. Mm-hmm. And I figured that, if that was my experience, it had to be others' experience. Well, that makes you dangerous. I guess so. Yeah. That's where I got it, right? That's where I got well, that reputation. And really, really courageous because, yes. as you said, everyone else in the room was applauding this notion. And Mary Orlin and I remember those days well from our mm-hmm. uh, TV show in wine country. And mm-hmm. that was the benchmark. That was, you know, Robert Parker's seal of approval was what everybody wanted. And, you know, certainly here in California and Napa and Sonoma, everybody was trying to churn out those same style of big giant cabs and stuff and big Chardonnays. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, you know, that was the benchmark. That was the, that was the template. And it, I guess, yeah, in, <laughs> this notion of it being, of me being dangerous, I guess it's, um, I guess that's it in a nutshell, though. <laughs> and goodness knows, I'm just laughing because it's funny to think of me as being dangerous, but uh, I just couldn't keep my mouth shut. And I guess that's always sure. been my well, downfall. I, I can't, it, I do too. And, but I can't imagine you must have gotten a bunch of blowback on that. Yeah. Oh, what sure. was that like for you? Did you, uh, and, and how did you weather it? And, you know, where did you have moments of doubt or were, did it fire you up even more? Alice firing. Well, <laughs> uh-huh. well, I, I don't have, the thick skin that most people think I have. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe now it's a little bit thicker, but certainly not then. Um, and I, I'm still amazed. And I, it's here for me. It was just the right thing to do. And and what else can I do? I just can't live my life any other way. I was very hurt, and I. It was very hurt by a lot of the comments on the bulletin boards. I was hurt that people, you know, like hated me. Um, uh-huh. You know, I just, then I just got used to it, you know, mm-hmm. it's um, because as many people that hate me, there are other people that, you know, think I did uh, a good service to the wine world and actually drink the way I drink and um, mm-hmm. are happy for the way the wine world has turned. Um I'm not sure how I could have handled it differently. I've never been good at sugarcoating things. Uh, I wished I had been. I was never much of a diplomat. And, you know, what, what can I say? I weathered it by writing the next book and then the next book. Yeah. And then yeah. the next book. Sure. And I Keep just went ahead. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm interested in the fact that this sort of movement towards like this anti-homogenization let's not have the same taste mm-hmm. in every bottle and in the natural wine room they're kind of like two prongs but on a similar uh you know what i mean there it's a it's the, your goal is the same like the authenticity of mm-hmm. the grape and 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 the varietal right um yes it is the same and maybe the trajectory is going to be the same it's a little bit like group dynamics so i imagine when the first new oak came in people were really excited about you know the depth that it gave a wine and uh, or just the other layers and it was something new in the wine world and it tasted new and 
it was actually in the 80s, the 90s, was a very exciting time in wine. And, and in the early natural wine movement, it was extremely exciting because the variety was extraordinary and new wine vessels that were being used and there was all this excitement and now that um is mercury in retrograde (laughs) (laughs) and um and now that winemaking has become this thing we are seeing a lot of sameness in in natural winemaking and that's kind of pissing me off (laughs) but i think it's kind of a natural progression and um that is unstoppable it's but i still think right now we are in a better place in the wine world than we were even 10 years ago that's interesting um and so what drew you to going out and discovering all these natural winemakers who you have introduced so many people to uh well like some things haven't changed. I had a bottle of wine. It was extraordinary. You have to go see the people who made it. So that's what I did. And that led me into the natural wine fair syndrome of, well, syndrome is not really a syndrome, you know, like a <laughs> movement of, um, of France and little, little tiny lemonade stands of really crazy, wild, passionate people that was so, at the time in 2000, so different from any other kind of wine tasting here in the United States, where especially on the East Coast, people suited up and dressed up to go to, and they were a hush library kind of affairs, as opposed mm-hmm. to, you know, like laughing and drinking and oysters and more drinking and mm-hmm. hanging out and big after parties of you know just kind of nothing really super formal everything informal and just fun and a lot of rock music and dancing and people acted crazy it was like what was not to be exciting about that world Mm -hmm. you know these are people who view themselves as probably anarchists in the wine world um certainly in the minority and just having a good time making delicious wines and trying to figure out how to make wine without the safeguard. So it was as a journalist, it was something really exciting to write about. And then you meet more people that need coverage and you keep on going back. So that's what happened. It sounds like they have such a better time than the conventional wine world. Oh God, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, how is the uh, syndrome or the movement changed since you first started looking into it and writing about it? Um, As you look at kind of the natural wine world now it's certainly um well i'll let you i'd like to hear your opinion on it because i think there's i i'm at times a little confused about it but i wonder what you think about the, the movement well in general. i am very curious to hear what you're confused about um well, just should we say, start there okay sure i'm confused because i don't like i got invited to like the like a Tupperware style party for natural wines, you know, like that was where we were going to sell these natural wine brands. And I guess I'm, I'm curious to know whether, how as a consumer, how are we supposed to know, how do we believe what we're being sold and, and what, what as a consumer should I really look for to make the wine I, if I'm, if I would like to buy natural wine, how do I know I'm not just being sold a a label? You know what I mean? Right. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, I'd have to know more about that Tupperware style party and who was behind <laughs> like, it. Yeah. Um, um, but that may be more off air than for on air, but, uh, it's, it's like, it's no different. It's absolutely no different than you need to have a really good, um, wine cellar, Cavis wine shop that knows their stuff and really goes and visits people. Um, to be able to know otherwise there's really nothing on the label and especially now that wine natural wine is becoming so big it is and people are marketing it's funny years ago natural wine world was accused of their marketing there's no marketing going on today Hmm. there is marketing going on and with marketing going on you really have to ask some tough questions to get some tough answers i think start with the farming this is really cheap how do you manage to how do you manage to pull it, this out for like eighteen dollars a bottle? Or, you know, at the quality you're telling me it is. Uh, do you 
you say native yeast and low sulfite, do you use ultrafiltration? Do you use reverse osmosis? And um, do you use transgenic filtration? So there are questions or that you need to ask. Now, if you're used to taking natural ones and you can rely on your palate and you go, you know what, you're telling me it's natural, but let me tell you, it's kind of smells yeasted and it doesn't. Mm. But if you're a normal consumer that hasn't had that level of wine education, you need to find somebody that you can trust to lead you through. I just don't think there's a shortcut for that. Yeah, that's a great point uh, to to trust somebody who knows what they're talking about and not just think you can, you know, just find it at your local supermarket. Right. But, uh, and, and is there a difference in your opinion between a natural wine and organic wine or? Sure. You know, yeah. So organic wine, you're allowed to use any of the additives as long as they're organic. And there's a whole line, if you want to go online and just search organic wine additives and go to like Scott Labs or one of the other places, you can see a whole slew of things that you're allowed to use for organic winemaking. Hmm. And in natural winemaking, you are using grape and really nothing else. I have no problem with low sulfide addition, like at 20 to 30 parts per million, which, uh, which for me, depending on when that is added, the wine acts naturally, but um, if I like the winemaker, I trust them. If they think they need to add some sulfites, fine, but it's very different from 100 or 120 or even 240 of sulfite addition. So that's a big difference. But for me, it's just really great. Mm -hmm. And I don't, and none of those heavy duty, uh, no reverse osmosis, none of those big machines, no micro ox, nothing that changes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. And there seems to be, a swing or a pendulum swing towards a more natural style away from these big overblown over alcoholic over extracted wines mm -hmm. absolutely and right now in california there is tremendous variation was not that way 15 years ago even 10 years ago yes. so you can get much lighter style chillable wines chillable reds mm -hmm. um, you can still find massively oak chardonnay if that's what you're looking for mm -hmm. you can get nice austere showing you know the sea coast it's really it's a fantastic moment right now for california wine it is you're right there's a lot there yes so and and that's that's has occurred over the last you know i i think in earnest in the last 10 years it's mm -hmm. really changed since you started writing about this stuff um so speaking of writing we mentioned that you uh are the author of, did I get it right? Is it six books now? Yeah, it's six books. That's con congratulations. That's Thank huge. You. I know and it's the, wild. <laughs> <laughs> it's very impressive because it's a no small undertaking to write a book. I never have, but I um, admire the fact that you've, you've gone there six times. And this latest one is very personal. I mean, I think many of your, your books have a personal bent to them and, and you talk mm -hmm. about yourself in them. But this one is is your memoir. And I'm curious about, um, oh, how you, I, I love the fact that each your chapters end with a recommended wine. And I'm, mm -hmm. I want to know how you decided, how you fit the wines to your personal story. I thought that's a, kind of a nice touch. And it's so it makes the book, um, we learn about you, but we also learn about wine. Yeah, I'm very, I have to say that I'm very pleased that it it seems to have worked. So I'm very pleased with myself for pulling that one off. I didn't know whether I could. I really didn't know whether I could do it. Um, you know, writing a book is a, a mysterious thing. If you're reading writing a guidebook, it's one thing. Uh, so natural wine for the people was much easier. But here it's like, how did I do this? How did I write this? I knew that I these were not going to be like the 15 wines that you must have before you die it's not my 15 most favorite but it's the wine that i paired with that chapter that made the most philosophical and emotional sense um sometimes it was very apparent like um the first one about my grandfather and and teaching me how to smell it seemed what I wanted to tell the reader is something about aromatic mm -hmm. wines, mm -hmm. which 
usually, you know, you either love them or you hate them. And they really, I've never seen a piece written about aromatic wines. It seemed fresh and new in a little way to put it down on print. And so I was looking back at my wine notes for some of the most fascinating aromatic wines that I had recently. So that's how I found, came across Mingako. And everyone that I, mostly every wine that I read about, I had visited and spent time with the winemaker. Mm-hmm. I, so actually everybody in the book, I had at least spent time with the winemaker if I hadn't visited. So that one was easy. Pairing um, a wine to the chapter of um, going to Auschwitz and Birkenau, well, that was a little bit more difficult. Mm-hmm. I, mm-hmm. I kind of wanted to skip that one. It seemed almost unseemly to write about wine. And and um, so I thought about literally what wine did I have after that experience and who's, and it was in Nebbiolo, mm-hmm. but who's Nebbiolo's story could I hook up somehow to that? So sometimes it was the winemaker and their circumstance who made that bottle. Um, and so that's how I came to that. But each one was a different process. And some were really last minute additions because it took me that long to figure it out. Really? Sure. So you cared, you really were, you fretted about which were the right mm-hmm. choices for. Yeah. I fret about everything. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but. But Alice, what I love is that you take us along on a wine journey while we follow you on your wine journey um, from your earliest days, and you introduce us to some really fascinating wines and winemakers that, you know, for a lot of people reading your book probably have never heard of. Mm-hmm. Thank you. I think that you, uh, that was uh, a great way to sum up my book, which sometimes when people ask me, I get all tongue-tied. I don't know what to say. <laughs> you can borrow it. That's fine. Thank you. I'll do that. <laughs> but yes, you've had the good fortune to meet a ton of interesting people, yes. uh, winemakers and and not. I mean, uh, I don't want to do too many spoilers on this, but you in your book, you talk about um, meeting Nina Simone. Yes. Yes. Um, yeah. That was like when you think about which stories of my life come in. and. Uh, Yes, I met Nina Simone. I more than met her, spent uh, hours in her presence and being very uh, responsible for getting a very unwilling artist to the stage. <laughs> so wild. <laughs> and uh, there, she was kept them waiting for two hours, 2,000 people waiting for Nina, right. and I had I delivered her. Um, yes, and so actually that was a pretty easy one about like how I, how I, since I did bring her sparkling wine, it was easy to make that mm-hmm. wine about champagne. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but she was, that was amazing. Could not believe it. That was quite an experience. Yes, exactly. to go from like just meeting her and having the good fortune to get to meet her and be in her presence to actually being the person who coaxes her to get on stage. Like, come on, Nina. I mean, it's, just, <laughs> it's, it's pretty mind boggling and a pretty, um, just, a, just an amazing experience. And right. I'm sure it was one of those pinch me moments right. for you. As you look back on it, you probably were like, did that just happen to me? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I was looking at the, some of the pictures taken of me that night and I basically have that look on my face. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh my God. And so one of the thing, the thing that helped get you get her back on stage was she wanted you to accompany her to Israel as her assistant to translate and um you you know you didn't give her an answer and then you know when um the hours were racking up you finally said to her okay i'll go to israel with you you and (laughs) and that's kind of what did it but then um she found another assistant after one assistant who she fired i think she calls you and says i need you to be my assistant well, actually, it was, it was, she wanted me to be her business manager. That's it, yes. And which is, I mean, taking her appointments and doing that, but like doing her accounting is something that I would be miserably, I mean, that was not my future. What, <laughs> what the lesson that Nina taught me was to go ahead and live my life and going and taking care of hers was sort of, uh, 
uh, not exactly the path that was going to happen. Mm-hmm. I mean, her her business affairs would be in far worse shape if I had taken over. <laughs> Well, we are thankful that you didn't take that path. Well, and it shows a strength of character because you could have just been starstruck and thought, well, I could probably do this. I mean, it's Nina Simone. Why not? I, you know, I know. Believe me, it was, I was like, oh my God, can I actually really say no? <laughs> <laughs> so there is another story in the book and we don't want to give too much away, but it takes up a great deal of your life and your thoughts, um, your encounter with and not knowing this person was a serial killer but escaping him and then him coming popping up in your life years mm-hmm. later right he's the only person well i guess i get every since i'm a major character in every one of these things yeah. he's the only one who really oh actually no that's not true because my brother does my father does but he gets mm. two whole chapters um in this book um yeah, uh, at one point I was going to be writing a memoir about why he didn't kill me, but I have I have too many pages on that, and I realized I didn't want to spend two years working with this sort of material, but yet it was such a dramatic thing in my life. How could I not put it in this book? Mm-hmm. Uh, and... Uh, yeah, it's not exactly the kind of material that one expects when, oh, a wine writer's memoir. That's going to exactly. tell us these pretty little stories about how she yeah. became a wine writer. Yeah. And, uh, but I did include it for not only because how could I not, but I do think there is something in that young girl trying to get out of a locked door um, who is very telling about the person that I became and especially this idiot who went back for her book after she escaped somebody. Mm -hmm. So I think that tell that's so telling about my personality when I get so incensed and angry that I probably forget about my own safety. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to your very first question well, one of the first questions about me is that the reactions to me after I you know attacked a god mm-hmm. so yeah well, I mean it, it sure you sure are brave I mean there's <laughs> like it's uh in the pattern in your life is going for it you know and um I don't even think your your career choice as a writer uh I don't, if I remember correctly, you didn't really have your family support on that. No, didn't. No, in fact, when I came back to New York, it was like, I think I was being treated by like a heroin addict. It was just, no, I'm really just going to be a writer. (laughs) You know, (laughs) it's it's not illegal. Yeah. Yeah. I I might make some money, big question mark. I mean, like. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But no, you're going to be poor for the rest of your life. Don't do it. But, But that notion that you were willing to. I don't know. I mean, it sounds so trite, but follow your passion and just, you know, forge your own path to heck with what your parents wanted, what your grandfather wanted for you. And, um, you know, that it was just about what you knew was in your gut and what was you, you know, where you, what you were meant to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Stubborn or Mm -hmm. I don't know, some or what, but (laughs) you know, it's, I don't really consider it courageous. I think that when, you think you ha- can take no other path. I'm not sure that's courageous. You know, it's just, you can't do it any other way. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. I, I can see that. Yeah. Um, so, but I'll take the compliment. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I won't retract it then. Okay. <laughs> so not only did you go back for your book, which is a book by Camus, um, yeah, right. Yeah, wait, you wait, you, can't, you can't make this stuff up, right? I know, right? Oh, like, what yeah. is it? But, like, not, and I was like reading, I don't know, Nancy Drew. Or, exactly. Yeah. Um, 14. Yeah. It's, um, you know, I was, you know, it's at some point I remember saying, God, am I, you know, I was a precocious kid. I know I was at some point you get older and go, oh, it's such a shame. I'm no longer precocious. But, <laughs> you know, I had an older brother. So I read what Andrew read. Mm. Yes. But, um, so, but then years later, you went back again. I went back um, again. You had, um, 
you were, I believe, in New Orleans and you saw a news report about this serial killer who had been arrested and he, you recognized him immediately. He had a different name. And then um, eventually you went to both Rikers and San Quentin to visit him. Because I could. <laughs> um, <laughs> I At the point that I went, I mean, it was, I think the excuse, I had many excuses. One excuse is as a writer, like this is going to, I don't mean to sound trite, but, or the black humor in it, but sometimes you need to use it when it's so dark. But if a serial killer falls in your lap and you're a writer, you've got to use it. I mean, how can you not, how can you not investigate? So yes, I went to, he, he was extradited to New York for a few killings. I went to um, court. I went to Seaman Rikers at the encouragement of the cold case detective. He was hoping I would lead him to more bodies. But also I thought that I would probably be using the material for a book. I wasn't sure where it was going to lead me, but I knew that I had to seize the moment. Mm -hmm. And then uh, San Quentin was, was also along the lines of the same thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah. And but also I was uh, another woman who escaped him and who I was in touch, touch with. Basically, I felt like I was going to see him to find out stuff for her, too. And that conversation, was it just chilling for you? What was, you know, uh, yeah, you it was sit across from a serial killer? What does that feel well, like? Unlike you would imagine, you were alone. The first time in Rikers, I mean, alone, alone with an unshackled serial killer is a frightening thing when you are with no partition and you're just sitting there in a little room with a little kid, a little kitty room, little, yeah. you know, that was, so I already kind of knew the drift, at least in San Quentin, they're in cages, not in a closed room. Mm -hmm. So it's like a large kennel with their people all along, around and yeah, he could be really kick. He was a strangler, so it could be really quick about it, but. Uh, wasn't going to happen. I, I think I had, um, it was chilling because you're making chit chat with a serial killer, which is nauseating. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it wasn't that I was there in some legal business. It wasn't there as a social worker. Um, I was there to find out who I was when I was 14. And did he remember you? Did he remember that incident? No, which I find really remarkable because how many other idiots would go back to their book? Mm -hmm. um, except uh, you would think that you would remember the ones who got away because I think the ones who didn't get away were, you know, far more um, mm -hmm. plentiful. But it is just sitting, what to talk about, how to, what was I looking for? So I try to play journalist just to try to get, what, who was this man? And mm -hmm. I think that in that conversation, I realized that uh, I felt he had some sort of dementia, mm -hmm. um, whether it was Parkinsonian, because there was something going on there. And also, what was chilling about it is that he started trying to be charming. And that. Well, he, he even asked you once he found out you were a wine writer for some recommendations, right? Yes, yes. Oh, how bizarre. Right. And it was at that moment that I decided that this session was over and I'm leaving. Mm -hmm. It was really, I had that, okay, um, I, they were going to give me the whole day there, which I wasn't going to take, but it was, it was actually, I was there about two hours and that was, that was it. I was out of there after okay. that. And then hopefully, then you moved on to hopefully what was a better experience by driving south with this wine importer friend of yours to the Martin Ray yeah winery in well, Saratoga, well, which Martin is Martin Ray Vineyard. Um, yes. Yeah, because, um, yeah, the Martin Ray name was sold. And so the winery, yes. the new winery that has nothing to do with Martin Ray is up in right. Sonoma, but to the original Martin Ray Vineyard that I have been so, I mean, I would have loved to have met Martin Ray. What a character in the wine world. This was one of the most difficult chapters to pair with the wine. Um, and it was, it's kind of funny because it was staring me right in the face because immediately Jose picked me up and we went down to Saratoga. 
it was like it was obvious. I went to a vineyard. How mm. I had wine immediately after. <laughs> and it, so I it was I think what made it difficult is that it's just that wine chapter is just a continuation of the next move as opposed to something completely different. Uh, yeah, no, it was really life affirming. Um, when you when you survive a serial killer and without a bruise, as I did, mm-hmm. I think that the survivor's guilt is not um, insignificant. Mm-hmm. And uh, and you know, I, it was there where I think that survivor's guilt is a little bit too indulgent. And I think the thing to do is, if you survive, you need to live life to the fullest and make the most of it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's probably the same with any other kind of close call. Mm-hmm. Sure. Wow. You know, and you certainly are. Um, yeah. You know, I've in looking at, at your background and stuff, one of the things I found interesting is that you're into an unusual form. You, you, you taught dance? <laughs> well, I, I did um, an unusual form of folk dancing called yes. Morris dancing. <laughs> you, you, you finished my sentence. You knew where I was going. But yeah, well, I was look it up. So I, what is this? It. But mostly I just dance it with my team. And it's a British ritual dancing that comes out of um, the Cotswolds. It was, it, it flourished during Elizabethan times. And each village would have their own little form of little tradition of dancing. Anyway, I started doing this. I saw it for the first time in 1977. And at that time, I was I was still dancing, but I had given up being a dancer. Uh-huh. And I was going to go on to be a dance therapist, which I did for 10 years. And this is the way I got my performance kicks. And it's just so much fun. It's just a lot of leaping and frolicking with big sticks or handkerchiefs in your hands and live music. And if you do it on the street and you, and you make people smile and laugh. Well, that's interesting. The videos I saw of it are like, they look like festivals, street festivals. And yes, it does. It looks very joyful and, um, and old, old timey, you know? Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I, I really enjoyed watching. I watched about four different videos of it. So <laughs> I had to know what is this thing. So um, dance therapy. Uh, tell me about that and how it has helped you in your life and, and how you've helped others with it. Uh, dance therapy. So it is the psychotherapeutic use of movement. And quite frankly, when I was um just graduated, not knowing what to do with my life and not living in New York, having no idea where the door was or which door I wanted to be open. Mm-hmm. I thought, well, I have to do something with dance. And it seemed like I understood how therapeutic dance was for me and how phenomenal it makes you feel. I've always been fascinated by body language and and, and the secrets it reveals to other people. And uh, so I, it's a two-year master's program, and so I went into that, and I, I worked with uh, substance abusers. I worked with on psychiatric units. I worked with the criminally insane, and I worked with uh, with the elderly and dementia patients, and uh, people who were living in assisted living so I work with many different populations I think dancing helped me more than I never really did I never was on the other end of movement therapy but for the elderly it really helped them experience as okay I'm going to go into like I haven't talked about this in so long imagine having a stroke or being in a wheelchair, your physical life gets very small. In -hmm. fact, if you look at people in wheelchairs, they rarely move outside of the chair, even though they can reach, but they don't. So what I do as a movement therapist is expand their movement. Um, And with that comes an ability to make friends, to have some intimacy, to have some fun. Yeah. And so that's with that with that um, population, with substance abusers. When I worked with street drug users, you know, I would talk about where we'd work on posture 
what, the way you cop drugs on the street is not going to work it when you get into the workplace. So what does that mean? And um, a lot of physical boundary stuff. So in short, that's the kind of work that I used to do. Oh, it's fascinating. And totally. I, I love that, Find you know, the the notion of like, not just feeling better, but moving in the world better, you know, for the, the drug, the drug users, how do you move in the world better? And how can dance help yeah. you unlock that? Yeah, that's great. And, but, you know, also through your life, you've also done other things to help people. I mean, one of my other favorite chapters in your book is about when your toilet overflowed in your apartment, and the plumber <laughs> came in, and he know you know he's just you know typical blue class worker right and he notices all the wine in your apartment and things like so do you drink a lot and um after him being there for hours in your apartment um which ended up you having to get a new toilet um (laughs) you um he he, um kind of poured out his heart to you that he was not lucky in love and he didn't know anything about wine and you gave him three bottles um and i want to um help improve his love life and you said okay drink this for this this for this this for this can you kind of go through that um because this is when the title of your book um to fall, to fall in, in love, love drink yes really yes. came into focus for me right and the original title for that was how my plumber turned water into wine huh. and- <laughs> Um, Great. Because because that started out as a modern love column. And that was a a 1,200-word piece. And I think now it's like a 3,500-word piece. So uh, the way it was just such a a crazy day. Oh, my God. It was such a crazy day. And, And I... So... You know, as wine writers, we get a lot of samples, and I felt really, really, I had all this wine that I didn't want around here, and I felt really guilty giving him some of that. I, <laughs> but I did. Um, so <laughs> he was telling me I had some idea of what kind of woman he was looking for, and he really did. Thank God he didn't like this older woman, otherwise have a situation. But he like he was open to an older, more serious woman, and he kind of uh, described some frivolous women that. So anyway, I gave him a Moscato to Austin. And I basically said, you know, I forgot what I said, but basically it was, that was the obvious one. And, you know, if there are other things, other red flags about this, like maybe you shouldn't go on the second date with her if she really likes this one. Um, (laughs) Because it wasn't a very good, I mean, um, but actually, no, that was actually, but actually that was something, because Moscow was, Osti that I did give him was a good one. So I think that was, I can't remember, I'm sorry, but it was, um, but the Moscato to Osti that I gave him was a good one. And I said, if she, this is sweet, but not too sweet. And so then um, I think the one that was fairly obvious was a very over oak Chardonnay. That was it. It was a really stupidly over oak Chardonnay with not much in there. It was actually not very good wine. That's the one I said, you know, like if you're looking for somebody to share your life with you, this is not the person. Um, Alvarino, uh, gave him a really good one. Uh, this is, you know, it wasn't used it was organic viticulture. Interesting second date. And the clincher was going to be sent the second date wine was Moscato to Asti. And she understood it, that it was sweet, but it was interesting because mm-hmm. of the quality of the one that I gave him. I said, go for that. Then she's and- a keeper. Oh, and man, he was just, he was, he could not believe it. Oh, that <laughs> he was just so absolutely overjoyed. And I was just. <laughs> so I did you, did you no ever hear? No. Oh, you don't? No. Oh. No, I have oh. no idea what happened. Oh, rats. <laughs> I, I don't believe. I believe. I do too. I want that roadmap to romance. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I know. I suppose there's, I could do a whole book of them, right? Um, but he. Yeah, I'm going to believe that too. I think that that day and somehow changed his life, and I'm going to go with that. Yeah, nice, love it. <laughs> that is, is so there cool. Any, 
Um, Is there anything else you want to tell our listeners about your memoir or about your love affair with wine and your journey with wine? Like what, what keeps you interested in it now? I mean, you've been at this for a while. Do you feel like you're still making new discoveries? Yeah, the thing is, I am still making new discoveries. Every time I think, okay, I'm done. Uh, obviously, my battle for the past 20 years is, I mean, that's kind of over. Uh, natural wine is here. Mm-hmm. I can get off of that high horse, which is a relief. Um, <laughs> and, you know, but I, even though I, I always think, okay, I'm over it. I want to the next step. I'm writing a novel. I'm going to do something else. I still get such a charge out of maybe doing what I did with the plumber of of turning people on to things that will make them have a happier experience. And so that's still I still get a charge out of that. I still get a charge out of of like Vermont, which I think in the past five years has it's has evolve into an extremely exciting place for wine. I think what's going on now with a lot of co-ferments is an exciting new development. So it's not just wine. There's always something new and uh, and new people to write about. It's never ending. Yeah, It's never ending. Maybe my next thing is to get on the stick about how expensive wine is and really... It's not going to be too long before it really is for the elite. And, you know, maybe I can do something about that with my loud mouth. I don't know. <laughs> I'd love to see that. And also Me just the, the wine tasting experiences for people like my son <clears throat> in his early 20s. He was talking about a trip to wine country here in California, Napa, Sonoma. And where, where could he go and what should he expect? And everything was just so expensive. And the, the experiences are wonderful, but they're, you know... They come at it with a really big price tag, and I feel like that's keeping a lot of people out of the tent, and I'm not sure that in the long run that's smart for the industry, you know? Exactly. Good good point. I haven't actually been out there for a while to see what's going on with tasting rooms. Um, They've improved the experiences, but they've also upped the price, you know? know, It's like food and wine pairing, and which is, uh, you know, obviously it's a great idea, but you're, you're buying a day, you're buying an afternoon of an experience. And again, that, that at a high price, yeah, at a really high price, yeah, at a very high price, over a hundred, hundred fifty, two hundred, and more. That's a very high price. Yeah. So, needless to say, my son did not do that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, even then, there are going to be smaller people that have tasting rooms by you know smaller people who might have more friendly experiences. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yeah. those those local wine shops are such a treasure. Yes, mm-hmm. indeed. indeed. Yes. I have I. You've asked me some fascinating questions, and yeah, we just, are so grateful for the experience to yes. hang out with you, Alice, and to learn about you. And your book is such—it's um, a lovely journey through your life and your experiences with wine. And uh, the recommendations are really—they're um, off the beaten track. The kind of the wines you you recommend—they're not your everyday. Some of them are really different, and I, I think our our listeners are really going to love this this book and. Um, I, we appreciate you taking the time to talk with us about your journey as a wine writer. Yes. Um, I appreciate you taking the time to actually read the book. I mean, oh. so like, that's great. Obviously yes. you've read it. So <laughs> that makes me feel really good. So no, absolutely. I mean, I can't imagine doing an interview with an author and not reading the book. Sometimes it happens. <laughs> I, I know. No, I know it happens a lot, but I, that's just me. My husband says, you know, you don't need to read the whole, full book. I'm like, yes, I do. Yeah. <laughs> That, okay. that, that's you, I know. Mm. Well, good luck with the book but, yeah. tour and continued success to you. I'm curious to see what the next thing in your, uh, what, what comes out of your keyboard next. Oh, we should mention you also have your newsletter. The I have a yes. newsletter. I mean, silly me. Yes, I always forget about um, the opportunity for self-promotion. Yes, uh, I do have a newsletter, The Firing Line, which is in its 10th year this oh. year. And, yeah. and I'm a subscriber. Oh, fabulous. Yes. So I've been reading you for a long time, Alice. <laughs> you know, actually, it was when I saw your name, Orlin, Orlin, I know this name. I know this name. And then I read your bio and it was like, well, I'm 
now I know it from somewhere else. <laughs> now I know. Because I usually, you're a subscriber. Well, thank you for subscribing. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I enjoy it. She's it's, in the club. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's a thrill to speak with you. And I hope one day to meet you in person. I hope we can make that happen. That would yes, be great. Absolutely. Yes. Well, Alice Firing, thank you again. You've inspired us. Uh, we love the insight you share with you have shared with us, and your advocacy for authentic, natural wines and people doing the right thing by the grapes. So, <laughs> thank you for uh, for the work you've done and continued success to you. And sip, sip, hooray! Sip, sip, hooray! Cheers to everybody. <laughs> Mary Babbitt, Alice Firing is just a force to nature of natural wine and writing. She was just so engaging and I just loved her stories. Yes, me too. The memoir is really interesting. It's a great read. And along with her personal story, you get those great wine tips and um and those are fun too. So it's 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 a lovely way to put the story of her wine life together and her personal life as well. Absolutely. And on our show page at sipsipparay.com, I'll list all of her books and um, a link to the how you can sign up for her newsletter, The Firing Line. Well, we thank you so much for listening today. We are Sip Sip Hooray. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, we hope you share it with your friends and leave a comment. Give us a good rating. It really helps what we're doing and it helps spread the word about our podcast. And please follow us on social media. We are at Sip Sip Hooray Podcast on Instagram and Facebook and Sip Sip Hooray, the number one on Twitter. Right, well, that's going to do it for us today, Mary Orland. Cheers yeah. to you, girl. Cheers, Mary Babbitt, to um, and here's to our next exciting podcast. Join us then. Thanks, Mary. Cheers. <laughs>